The Devil Pulls the Strings by J.W. Zarek Narrated by Kurt Bonham Chapter 8 Steinhardt Building Screech! Ah, ah, bloot! Tires squeal against asphalt. The driver pounds on their horn, snaps me out of my dream. I'm back. I'm back on the sidewalk next to Sapphire. I pat my chest, arms, waist, and wipe sweat from my forehead. Can you believe this? Sapphire says, and stares at a pink sign on the corner pole that reads, No Parking Film Shoot. Green and West 4th Streets are blocked. Sapphire pulls off her hat, glances at her mother's watch, sighs, puts the hat back on. Come on. She walks up Washington Street, driven, get out of my way written all over her face. She doesn't even notice I was gone. Professor Stone's office is in this direction. I want to make sure she's on task and not taking me to a lecture or competition or whatever else she had planned for today. At the corner of West 4th Street and Washington Square East, she turns, picks up the pace, and ignores my question. Across the street, trees line Washington Square Park, and there are crows, lots of them, more than a murder or two. Are you a city girl? I ask. Does it count living in Paris, New York City, and Castri? She's a city girl, familiar with her concrete steel jungle. I bet most people in the city pay no heed to nature, even when black crows are screaming in their faces. Still, I decide to ask. What's with all the crows? Do you usually see so many? Sapphire looks over at the park. I don't see crows. New York has pigeons. She points to two pigeons pecking at pieces of pizza crust. I look again, and all I see are crows. Why doesn't she? Maybe she's too preoccupied. Getting shot at could do that. How much farther to Professor Stone's office? Just around the corner. We turn down Washington Place, then right at Green Street. A blue banner is mounted on the building directly in front of us. NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. A ten-story, turn-of-the-century brick tower. Professor Stone's office is in here. Sapphire crosses the street. Somewhere in the sea of black-framed frosted windows, I'm hopeful we'll find the music or a clue. And a phone to call the police. This week, New York City celebrates the life work of Niccolo Paganini, Sapphire says. An excited note to her voice. A Paganini Week ad plastered on the side of a parked truck. That explains why I keep seeing the ad about Paganini Week. My mind jumps back to earlier in the cab, and the exploding glass flying from the truck's passenger side mirror and a flash of the same ad. Same truck? Under the words, an image. A tall, thin figure clad in black plays a violin hovering over three silhouettes of buildings. Sapphire, what are those building silhouettes on the park truck? That's Lincoln Center, Trinity Church, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, she says, a hitch of surprise in her voice. 
Outside the entrance to the Steinhardt building, men and women are moving dollies of equipment, lights, cables, and other stuff inside. We weave through the maze and reach the front of the building. Ring, ring, ring. Sapphire pulls out a cell phone from her bag. Her face wrinkles into a confused expression. I was sure my phone died this morning. So we can call the police. The words blast from my mouth. She ignores my plea. It's my father's secretary. I have to take this. Can you wait inside the entrance? She motions toward the entrance. We have to speak to Marcy about Stone. I don't know who Marcy is, but Sapphire's distracted and will explain after her call. Yes, ma'am. I walk in, and at the reception desk sit two older guys dressed in dark blue. NYU security stitched in yellow on their shirts and hats. The guy on the left has snow-white Bozo the Clown hair that explodes from under his hat. His name tag reads Blaine. The other guy is shorter, a good foot shorter. His hair and beard are dyed an unnatural red. Reminds me of a taco gone rancid. His name tag reads Bo. They notice me, and their faces come to life with a fake animation reserved for greeting a thousand guests a day. Blaine says, May I help? Bo says, Do you have an appointment? They look at each other, half indignant, half humored that they split their usual message. Let me help you guys out. I'm just waiting for a friend to finish a call. We're going upstairs to meet Professor Stone. Do you have an appointment? Blaine says. You can phone in advance to make one, Bo says. Flynn and I consider ourselves the original Tweedledee and Tweedledum of the Renfair, but he's going to be uber upset I met the originals without him but maybe we at least have a future in security. Oh, there was a protest at the Eisner and Luban Auditorium, Blaine says. One of them multicolored events, Bo says. That's Rainbow Coalition, Blaine says as if Bo should know. Oh, yeah. Bo shakes his head. I work at interrupting their useless banter. Guys, I'm just waiting for my... We don't take appointments. Blaine says. But you can make appointments by calling. I was getting ready to tell him, Blaine says, pushing air through his teeth. I know, but if he's looking to make an appointment, calling is what you do. Guys, I'm waiting for my friend so we can speak to Marcy about Professor Stone. She works with him in this building. Both guards fall silent. The devastation that rips across their faces tells me they know Stone is dead. The professor's dead, Blaine whispers. His eyes water and voice wavers. The dean's office said the police found him splatted on the sidewalk outside his home. Bo takes out a handkerchief, blows his nose. Might have been foul play, Blaine swallows. Sapphire walks in, flashing her ID. Blaine lights up. Miss Anjou, welcome back. Bo gives a friendly wave. Hi, Miss Andrew. Are you two staying out of trouble? Sapphire shoots them a tell-me-the-truth look, which reminds me of one of my substitute teachers, Sister Mary Annunziata. Today we're staying out of trouble, Miss Anjou, Blaine says. But if you had been here yesterday... Bo shakes his head. 
Sapphire grabs my arm, pulls me past the desk. Ah, my father finds everything out. Because I'm Professor Stone's assistant, the police contacted the embassy, asking about me. Seems they found the research I was doing for Stone at the murder scene with my contact information. And worse, my research was in an embassy folder, as I didn't have anything else to put it in at the time. My father wants to know if this incident will embarrass France, and is it a mess his staff has to clean up again. Your father heard about Professor Stone, but wasn't calling to find out if you're all right? I didn't speak to my father. That was his secretary. Her face flushes. Wait, did you say clean up your mess again? Can we change the conversation, or not talk at all? Or how about I tell you a weird fact about this building? I can tell her family issues seem larger than mine, so I shrug. Sure, I'm all about weird facts. Whatever you do, never drink from the fountain on the ninth floor. It's a special kind of cringeworthy flavor that lingers for hours. The building's custodian said the water was tested and tastes fine. But seniors try to scare freshmen by telling them the water is cursed from ritual sacrifices and murders that occurred in the lower levels before the school bought the building. Is this true? New York City might actually have some cool factor. Professor Stone told me there had been deaths, some construction workers and a teacher and student in the 1920s, a bizarre accident, but no ritual sacrifices and murders. What do you think is wrong with the water? I ask. Whatever's coming out of the fountain on the ninth floor coats your tongue. But ritual sacrifices and murders? I don't think so. You know we have to stop and try the fountain, right? I say. A grin splashed all over my face. Fine. She leads me to the fountain. I bend down for a fateful sip of the horror water. I slurp. Ugh, this is so disgusting. Oh, Flynn would kill to have some. I take a second sip. Oh, oh man, that is such a perfect kind of awful. It has a delightful mixture of rotten eggs and weak-old fermented Baltic Sea herring on vacation inside a hobo shoe in a toxic landfill. Sapphire has that same expression my aunt gives me whenever I do something my cousin Lucas dares me to do. That, why would you do that expression? I dive in for another sip. Now it tastes like a Doritos chip covered in goose poop with a hint of rancid meat, cherry cola fizzy pop, and lime. I bet she's going to hurl. I never should have told you about this fountain. I'm glad you did. This water's awesome and disgusting. At the 10th floor, an empty welcome desk greets us. I pointed an ominous flickering light beckoning us down a deserted hallway. So much for great technology in this building. Or maybe this has more to do with those sacrifices and deaths you told me about. She ignores my comments and heads further down the hall, where there's the faint, repetitive, whirring sound of a copier. Marcy must be ill. She leads us to a small room. The copier makes copy after copy with the cover ajar. 
something more substantial than a document sits underneath. The repeating whirring and patterns of lights cast an eerie play of shadows on the walls. Mousy? Nervous tension floods Sapphire's voice. Mousy? Are you ill? No response. Drip, drip, drip. What's that sound? Sapphire asks. Down the edge of the copier, slow-moving narrow rivers of blood flow and pool on the floor. Sapphire grabs the back of my shirt. Is that blood? I think so, I whisper. Sapphire taps my arm. Go look what's under the copier cover. I shake my head. You lift the cover. I bet it's just some horrible prank to scare Marcy, she says. Her voice trembles. I reach over and lift the copier cover. Marcy! Sapphire whisper screams, covers her mouth. A bloody severed hand sits on the copier bed. That has to be fake. It's an Halloween unprunk, Sapphire says. It's the middle of May, I whisper shout. Does Marcy wear a wedding ring? Yes, it's a gold band with a series of crosses. Sapphire grabs my arm tight. That's Marcy's wedding ring. And look, bloody shoe prints. I point to a trail leading down the hall. The prints stop in front of Professor Stone's office. Sapphire's voice is filled with disbelief and fear. Kaboom! Twack, twack, twack! Thud. The noise sounds like when Flynn and I roughhouse, but much worse. Something heavy is being thrown around. A muffled whimper. Sapphire clutches my wrist. Her fingers press into my flesh. Look, pal, we're reasonable. It's the same deep gravelly voice I heard six cars up from Professor Stone's brownstone. One of the men with guns who chased us. His voice didn't sound reasonable then. It doesn't sound reasonable now. My heartbeat rattles into a syncopated run, run, run rhythm. His voice scrapes down my spine like Aunt Vivian's worn away brake pads scrape down my spine at stop signs. We'll stop cleaning up at this place with your face as soon as you tell us where the music is, says a different male voice, younger, sharp-toned with an Italian accent. Maybe you'll be a little more accommodating and get to walk out of this. Alive, the gravelly-voiced man says. Wait! A high-pitched, nasal, wheezing voice wavers, drips with exhaustion. I lean toward Sapphire. Who's that? I think that's James, the 10th floor security guard. Twack! Crunch! Thud! Definite beating of human flesh sounds. Your eyes are getting droopy. Where's the music, security man? The Italian accent voice asks. I already told you, this whole building has music in it, James says. I'll give you one more chance to help yourself, says the gravelly-voiced man. What music do you want? James begs. I'm only going to say this one time, the gravelly-voiced man voice says. Capale! The sheet music the association sent Professor Stone. Now, where is it? Okay, okay, 
James wheezes. All I know is Professor hasn't brought that piece of music here yet. His voice dims. I signed for a shipment from Amici di Paganini, and another shipment went directly to Professor Stone's house. That's all I know. Can I go now? I'm going to throw up. James's tone wavers as he struggles to get the words out. Go now. Sure, sure, security man. The gravelly-voiced man's words warm, smooth, and low carry mock undertones. Do you like takeout? What? Takeout? Like food? Um, sure I like takeout, James says. Then say it, security man. Say, I want takeout. The gravelly-voiced man bites each word. Okay, don't hurt me again. I want takeout. Okay, you heard security man. Let's show the man takeout, gravelly-voiced man says. A flash of Flynn fighting for his life in the hospital, stone dead on the pavement, the gruesome hand in the copier. I can't stand by and do nothing amid more violence. My gut clenches. My feet in motion. I fly to the door and kick it open. Stop! Broken pieces of furniture lay with scattered papers and sheets of music. The man from this morning, in a fedora hat, smirks. And his two massive goons toss James out the window. I'm too late. Adrenaline fires. I grab and throw the first thing. A bowl full of rosin cakes. Bang! A gunshot. The bullet strikes the bowl. It explodes into an amber dust cloud. I run. Out the door, down the hallway. Sapphire ahead of me. Get them! They were the ones outside Stone's brownstone. They could have the music. Fedora man bellows. This way. Sapphire pulls me into the stairwell. Coming up next in The Devil Pulls the Strings by J.W. Zarek. Chapter 9 Space 879A